Greetings and salutations, Device Nation. You're home for the greatest show on earth, and we know that show is Medical Device Sales. And I say that every week, and I still believe it. I think this is the most awesome job in the world. We're going to be giving you ideas, stories, and interviews today to help take you from good to great. I hope you had a great day. hope you had a great week. I know I did. This is Kevin Brown, your voice of mobile bearing in times of posterior dislocation. We are still in Nashville getting our country on. By the way, I have worked at some seriously southern hospitals over the years, and I just love some of the phrases I've picked up. Ready for a country talking in service? Uh, and I am not providing donuts. Number one, the substitution of wasn't with won't is a classic. It won't me, for example. It won't me. And if you want to kick that up a notch, make a little spicy sentence sandwich out of it, feel free to exchange won't with weren't, as in it weren't me. That is rich. Here's another one for you. When telling someone you were trying to locate them, just say, I was looking you. For bonus points, stitch all these together. I was looking you, but you won't home. Got it? Pull that out at the next meeting. My mom was an English major, so I am particularly attuned to those who routinely murder the King's English, but sometimes it presents itself as pure art. Uh, Case in point, multiple negations are rampant in the South. More than one negative in a sentence. I ain't owed nothing to nobody. Doubles are common, triples rarer still, but a particular nurse I work with, loved her to death. She pulled off the quad. If we were in a first-person shooter, I saw Rampage on the screen when she hit that 4X multiplier. I thought, I am in the presence of greatness, impressive stuff. Well, our guest today is a quadruple positive. Dr. Corey Callendine spending some time with us to talk about his life and what's going on in Franklin, Tennessee, right next to Nashville. And I am so thankful he came on to talk to us. So welcome to the show, Dr. Callendine. Thanks so much for having me. Appreciate it. Dr. Callendine, you have made so many professional contributions to our space, and I'm really looking forward to talking to you about Mako Robotics, AUKUS Industry Relations uh, work that you're doing, Missions Work, Franklin, Tennessee. But first, uh, let's go back to Fried Hardman University. What put you on the path to medicine and then ultimately orthopedics? Yeah, the, uh, the FHU Mighty Lions. Yeah, thanks for starting there, Kevin. Um, you, you know, I, I get the question from time to time, like, you know, why, why medicine, you know, what, what kind of puts you on the path? I had two older brothers and they both chose medicine. And so my, my oldest brother is, uh, he trained as a pediatrician, my middle brother, he's a radiologist, so he's successful, but not really helping patients. You know, that's always <laughs> the joke in the family, but, but medicine early on, um, I think I think when we were kids, we knew that we were kind of raised to kind of help people, and so we were drawn to that. My father was a preacher, and uh, in honesty, you know, I'm pretty sure both parents, my father and my mom, are disappointed that I didn't go into the ministry. Um, so uh, having three sons that were doctors, uh, some would think that was good. I think they're 
they're pretty disappointed in us, but we, we, we chose, you know, we, we all, we, we all went to Freed Hardeman, which is a small little Christian college. And then obviously from there, med school and on, but I was the only one to select orthopedics. Well, if ministry is helping people, then you guys all ended up in ministry, right? You know, I've tried to make that point. I don't think my mom's convinced. <laughs> Well, you went on uh, from there to an adult reconstruction fellowship at Anderson Orthopedic. That's just an amazing program founded by two legendary surgeons, the Ng brothers, Dr. Charlie and Dr. Jerry. What was it like working beside these giants and uh, what was your experience like there? Boy, uh, Kevin, well stated. Th- those guys are giants in, in our field of joint replacement and they're they're pretty they're pretty different guys. It was incredible when I was there. It was actually the last year that Charlie was operating still. Uh, Jerry was there still quite active in practice. But it was incredible to hear some of these foundational or formation stories about orthopedics. Charlie would always talk about how he would go to these meetings and tell everybody that you really should quit using cement on the hip. And he would present these papers that were largely based in the uh, dental world of bony ingrowth for dental implants and kind of got laughed out of the room. And then obviously we know what has happened subsequently and cementless fixation of the hip is now the gold standard in the U.S., certainly uh, very common. And he was kind of the first one to lead that. So to listen to him say that and experience that and kind of live the history of hip replacement in the U.S. through his eyes was absolutely incredible. Jerry obviously comes at it a very different way, you know, focusing on knees. His knees at the time, the cementless knees, the old AMK that he was a part of, Mm -hmm. they didn't do quite as well, Kevin. And so they would always uh, pick on each other and, you know, as brothers tend to do. But learning from guys like that is truly one of the uh, greatest honors of of my young career. I never got the opportunity to hear Dr. Ng speak to a room of people, but I've talked to so many people that have and, and say he's so charming, so disarming, and, and just owns the room uh, when he's through giving a talk. Well, he, he absolutely does. And, and we don't have, listen, I, I've had it many, many incredible mentors. And even, you know, this week talked to several guys at different programs and so many impressive guys in orthopedic surgery. But those people that are larger than life in our orthopedic uh, space are few and far between. And, you know, at least in, in my experience, he stood above. You landed in Franklin, Tennessee. I believe country music is on every radio station there. What's it like living in Franklin? It seems like a wonderful town to call home. Well, yeah, d- you know, you don't publicize this uh, too widely, Kevin. <laughs> I know you have some incredible uh, listeners, but uh, it, it, it is it is the place. We have four seasons. Um, I live in Brentwood, which is kind of uh, positioned between Franklin slightly to the south and Nashville to the north. All of this is within um, oh, 15, 20 mile radius. So I can be downtown at, in Nashville. I can be in a small little uh, restaurant in Franklin, t- Tennessee, like a little historic district, or I can be a, in the middle of nowhere in minutes. So it's a wonderful place to live. When, when I came, <clears throat> I trained, I did my orthopedics at Vanderbilt. So I lived in the mid state of Tennessee. But uh, after my, my fellowship, I wanted to return to the area. I joined a little small community practice at that time called Franklin Bone and Joint, founded by uh, Craig Farrell, another one of my mentors. 
that I was referencing earlier, he established a practice practice in 1979, and it just grew and grew and grew. So I joined a private practice as the first fellowship-trained joint replacement guy. So, Kevin, you can imagine what my first couple of years were. Um, wow. You know, all revision work, as you imagine, at one point. Your, your listeners will love this. I had 10 antibiotic spacers in place waiting for replant. So I had an incredibly, oh um, incredibly sexy practice <laughs> for, for a while. Um, but uh, we, we've expanded our program, and we were with Vanderbilt for about 10 years. But now we partner with a local hospital there, a community hospital, which is an interesting setup um, to really kind of expand orthopedics for this area. So being nestled right here under Nashville, I have access to everything, but just a wonderful community to be a part of. Well, let's let's talk about your current practice, of which you are a founding partner, Bone and Joint Institute there in Franklin. 16 surgeons, a lot of spine coverage, I noticed, uh, that has had to be very rewarding putting all that together. Well, it was a great opportunity for us. You know, I, I joined the community practice, then we were partnered with Vanderbilt for 10 years. And, and, and finally, we made the decision to kind of align ourselves with the local hospital. For us, the strength has always been in the community. And so, uh, yeah, we established this Bone Joint Institute of Tennessee. We were able, through that partnership, the hospital actually built some dedicated space for us. It's a 120,000-square-foot facility. It's dedicated to orthopedics, a standalone building. The ASC that we have, the Ambulatory Surgery Center that we have, is uh, in the first floor of that building and allows us to kind of control or you know help guide, if you will, the patient experience really at every step, be it clinic or physical therapies in the building as well, or obviously the ASC, like I mentioned. Imaging is in the same building. It's really created kind of an awesome one-stop shopping for the patients. So the ASC has just uh, really exploded all around the country as the the landing place for a lot of surgeons to do their their joint reconstruction these days. Has that been uh, uh, your experience, and and what percentage of your joints are you doing in that setting these days? Yeah, that's a great question. You know, you know, talk about timing. Uh, I, I don't, Kevin. I don't know if you're if your listeners have heard, but there's a virus around, um, and it has really changed healthcare in many ways. One of which people want to minimize their, uh, you know, um, uh, participation in anything that requires a hospital stay. So obviously joint replacement conventionally was done in the hospital. And golly, when I started practice in 2007, I think the average length of stay was three or four days. That length of stay has come down, but now people have the ability not even to go to the hospital. So that's certainly been a, a push not only long in coming anyway, but really pushed further because of COVID. What percentage of my patients do I do as true outpatient, meaning go home the same day? It's probably 30, 40% now, whereas last year it was probably 10%. So not only the opening of the ASC, that was February of this year of 2020. Talk about horrible timing to open that ASC, <laughs> but we, sure. got, we, we, we got through it. But with the opening of the ASC and obviously the, the change in healthcare due to the uh, due to the pandemic, we've seen we've seen greater interest in ASC and certainly greater interest in in true outpatient joint replacement. You know, when you talk about ASC settings with with reps and with surgeons, uh, the conversation always comes to the pain control uh, at some level when you're talking about outpatient. And I'm just curious: is there any notable items on your preference card to to address that? Well, uh, Kevin, I have many control issues. Uh, I would argue that's a 
the quality of any good surgeon. Uh, <laughs> at least that's <laughs> at least that's what I tell myself. But no, we we've really had to dial in the pain control. You know, oftentimes the orthopedic surgeon is is kind of put up on a on, on a pedestal as oh he's an outpatient guy or whatever. That's kind of a very popular thing to say. But in reality, it's the pain control that is so essential to allowing that program. You know, the changes, the modifications in technique. That they're certainly present, but they're less important than our pain protocol. So what, what we do is a short acting spinal. We do IPAC blocks and adductor canal blocks. We actually uh, inject the adductor, adductor canal with Exparel. Uh, we've been, we do periarticular injections as well. But, but with those kind of aggressive anesthesia techniques, we've been able to minimize our narcotics. You know, the narcotics have such dramatic side effects, nausea, vomiting, I don't feel good. Uh, that, that's really why people are staying in the hospital. That, of course, and blood loss. So if you can control the side effects by minimizing the use of narcotics to start, you have the makings of, uh, of a short stay or outpatient joint replacement program. So we, we, we monitor all that pretty carefully have set protocols that we all adhere to and have had some some success with that i I know you do a lot of joints uh do you still do a lot of general stuff trauma pretty much grab bag of orthopedics these days yeah well you know kevin i want to serve my community but i also want to serve my partners so any opportunity to sell my call to a junior partner who's interested i want to capitalize on that and serve him in that way (laughs) so it's all about service it's all about service uh no i'm thankfully my practice uh is uh is essentially all elective uh, hip and knee replacement. We do take call at our level three facility, um, but due to some consulting work, sometimes I'm out of town with that. So my call responsibilities have diminished over time, Uh, but it's a level three facility for your listeners. So, you know, we see uh, hip fractures and ankle fractures, kind of the bread and butter trauma work. On your website, bone and joint tn, as in Tennessee.org, all one word to my listeners. Uh, under your name, it says hip and knee replacement and preservation. So let's talk preservation for a minute. What's on your list under that heading? Yeah, you know, I, I, I have to openly confess that uh, I do not personally do much preservation work. We have one of my partners, Dr. Colin Looney, trained with the guys at Stedman Hawkins who does hip arthroscopy, you know, femoral neck contouring for impingement type syndromes and obviously labral pathology. Um, I think that's probably why it made it uh, to the title. I think it's really, really important that patients know that surgery, specifically replacement of a joint, is not the only option. Uh, for for hip pain. So, uh, you know, our goal there is to be able to provide uh, great service across the board. You know, your your listeners no doubt know Tom Bird, you know, probably the, the name internationally in hip arthroscopy. He's in Nashville. And so we utilize his practice as well. This, this whole area, as far as orthopedic specialty, orthopedics, and really healthcare, uh, is really quite uh, the smorgasbord of options uh, for our patients. So we want to make sure and offer all that to them. Sure. Uh, the other day, Stryker just announced their 1,000th install uh, of their Mako robot, and that's a significant milestone. On a lot of your social media pictures, a Mako is your wingman. So tell me about your initial exposure 
to this technology, how it's progressed during your practice, and uh, what's going on? Uh, what's going on now with it for you? Yeah, it's it, it's certainly an evolving area, isn't it? And there's a lot of interest uh, uh, around it. I can tell you, I came to it the first time I saw a Mako robotic system was with Jerry Ng at my fellowship. Wow. It was one of the early uh, models. This would have been 2006. They wanted Jerry involved because he's he's known to be kind of the partial knee guy. And at the time, Mako was uh, really just a, a partial knee platform. They they subsequently added, obviously, total hip. But, you know, Kevin, something very interesting happened. So Mako was a small company, but before their purchase by Stryker, which we all know uh, finally occurred, but before that, they owned 20% of the partial knee market in the U.S. Now, that's pretty impressive from a really small company. And the reason why they did that is because there's something there, okay? It's not just the sexiness of the robotic system. There's there's something there. There's a differentiator there. And, and the reason why Jerry was so interested, partial knee replacement, so important to be precise, as you are really matching the patient's own anatomy and you're leaving a lot of their anatomy with them, ACL, PCL, lateral compartment, patellofemoral. So it made sense to me immediately for a partial knee, like I, like I already mentioned, they added the total hip. But I'll tell you, not long after their acquisition, I, I should say Mako's acquisition by Stryker, everyone kind of knew the play was to try to do the total knee. It's a high-volume procedure. It's the procedure at which 20% uh, patient satisfaction has been reported. And so that was kind of always the target. So I was lucky enough to acquire the technology at my hospital. My hospital had already seen the success of DaVinci, and they had made a significant impact in the market in the DaVinci years ago in the urological world. So they understood the concept of the market push initially. But Kevin, in fairness, that was not my interest. My interest was trying to deliver a better knee. So when we got the technology, I used the partial knee, and actually I I used the total knee largely to get – Striker to pay attention to me so that I, I could have the total <laughs> knee earlier. Um, that accidentally turned into a, a more longer standing relationship, as you've referenced. But, but the truth of it is, is our ability to accurately place components is now becoming, you know, the, 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 the target. For years and years, we wanted a better knee, right? We wanted the shape of it different. We wanted plastics better. We wanted the tribology, the metallurgy. We were really focused in that space. But now what we're learning is no matter how good the implant is, if it's not placed accurately, and this is true for total hip, uh, total knee, and perhaps maybe most for a partial knee, uh, it's going to affect the outcome. So we have to be, you know, critical of that. And, and, you know, you, you and I casually were talking earlier, we have to figure out how to push things forward. We cannot continue to do what we did yesterday and expect, uh, expect it to be good enough for the future. And my interest has been around this. There are plenty of unanswered questions, right? Um, But man, I want to be a part of answering some of them. 14 years, 350,000 cases. Stryker has uh, has really blazed this trail for for other companies coming into this space. And of the three, you know, you talked about differentiators. Of the three major components uh, of this platform, the 3D CT planning, the haptic technology, and the data analytics, 
Uh, is there one of those in particular that stands out as that that's been the most particularly helpful to you, or is there there's something else? Kevin, you've done your research. Th- th- this is a great question, right? And, and and you mentioned many players are in the robotic space, and I have always been quite vocal to say we cannot group all robotic um, programs. We cannot group all robotic technologies together. We must have a way to figure out which is the most important. Is it the CT scan with a pre-plan? Is it the intraoperative ability to adjust? Or is it that that third element of having an arm to execute your plan? The, the way I, I truly think about it is those three pillars. So Starting with a CT scan, so you start with truth. This is very different than navigation because we have a CT scan of a 3D model. So CT scan to start with the truth. That's step one. Number two is the ability to adjust your plan intraoperatively. Um, I, I think about that as predicting the future, you know, trying to figure out the knees balance before you cut the bone. That's valuable. And then the third step would be just some way to accurately, more precisely execute your plan because it doesn't matter how good the first or the second pillar is. If you don't have that third pillar, the execution pillar, you will fail. Uh, Kevin, I, I'd ask you this question. And I, I say this tongue in cheek and you can delete <laughs> okay. this if this is too harsh. <laughs> have you ever, have you ever seen a three legged table wobble? No. Well, see, because the only thing I learned in geometry <laughs> class was that between any three points, there's a single plane. So which one of those three pillars are most important is a challenging question that none of us know the answer to. I would suggest you need all three to be stable. That's a great way to wrap that up. The data analytics is fascinating to me because we always have this discussion of what is a perfect knee? Uh, and, and I think the analytics that's being gathered as a result of this technology is going to help us answer that question a little better. What do you think? I think that's so true. Only now can we more accurately execute our plan, right? But now we have the ability to track what we did in the operating room to patient reported outcomes. I, I get the question all the time, who, who's going to win in the robotic space because everybody is rushing in right? Robotics is such an evolving field. It's going to look different every year. So today's leader may not be tomorrow's leader, but who is going to win? I think the people that are going to win are the ones that are going to connect their intraoperative data or analytics to direct patient outcome. And whoever figures that out first, I think will be the champ. That's great stuff. Uh, one thing, just as a waiting room question, how do your patients respond when you share with them the integration of uh, robotics into their surgical plan? Yeah, I mean, most people think robotics are sexy. <laughs> so uh, they they often will mention the concern, hey, now the robot's not going to do the procedure, is it? And uh, I always reassure them the surgeon is still ultimately in control, of course. I, I describe it like it being a tool, not not, not dissimilar to, to to GPS. You know, if you if you don't know exactly where you're going, you turn the GPS on your car, and you have better information that is actionable to get you to your final destination. And so that's why how I try to describe robotics to them. It's a tool for me uh, to execute the perfect plan for them because every patient is unique, and uh, I've never been there before, despite doing hundreds and hundreds 
of joint replacements per year. I've never been in their joint before. So it's the customization that I think I, I try to stress, and people are real receptive to that. You know, one thing we can't prove, but uh, it's the, the hidden number in outcomes is patient expectations and what's going on between their ears about it. And I've often wondered when they know that they're being given a procedure that they feel in their mind is the cutting edge and the latest and greatest and robotic and, you know, all these other things, uh, what effect does that have on their expectations in a positive way that could in turn uh, affect a more positive outcome? I, I don't know the answer to that, but I know that there has to be some element of that somewhere. I, I think there must be, and that's why the push for complete blinding will be important. Uh, at some point, we need big data with the patient fully blinded as to whether or not they've had robotic joint replacement or not. Um, currently, I, I, I don't know of any study that's published in our peer review literature that is fully blinded. I can tell you, Kevin, where this has already been a major issue in the joint replacement uh, area is anterior hip replacement, right? How are you going to convince the person who had an anterior hip replacement that they didn't have an anterior hip replacement and it was posterior? I guess you'd have to make two incisions on everybody. Um, And there's so much marketing and support for the anterior approach. People mentally, again, stepping away from robotics, but now in the approach for the hip, mentally, they think anterior approach is so much better already going in. That, you know, anterior versus posterior approach, impossible, I think, to blind. But I think there's a real opportunity in robotics to eventually blind the patient completely. I think that that data would be valuable. You said two incisions, doctor, not me. Uh, you <laughs> did a couple of those back in the day, didn't you? Oh, my goodness. Uh, well, I watched several. <laughs> um, at one point during my training, uh, I watched uh, many, many uh, two incisions as my surgeon mentor, which I, which I greatly respect, was kind of learning through that and going through that uh, curve. Two incision is all but gone, which is kind of interesting with regard to anterior approach hips, you know, stepping away from the robotic space. But let's talk about that just for a second. You know, anterior hips have been around for a while, but they're staying. In fact, they continue to grow. So I think that means there's probably something more to it than the two incision, which kind of spiked and then I think has all but disappeared. Maybe your listeners could tell me otherwise. You're officially now an international speaker. That's quite an achievement. Tell me about your experience in in China. Have you been able to bring this technology over there? Yeah, no, I, I've been in China a couple of times uh, speaking specifically around robotics. Um, it's been a it's been an awesome experience. I, I was connected uh, not through corporate relations, but instead through. Um, uh, Hippanese Society uh, to go to go speak uh, at the Chinese Hip Society. I think that was my first engagement, and then um, I was in South Korea not too long ago. But that that entire area with regard to robotics. In fact, when I was lecturing in South Korea on the same panel as me, they were rep- reporting the ten-year data for the RoboDoc platform of total knee outcomes, which is published in the U.S. literature and shows uh, no different, which is which is really interesting, right, and gets Kevin to the point I was making earlier. What are those elements of the robotic platform that we think will be a differentiator? 
So um, it, it's been a great exchange. Um, every country is different with regard to their regulatory status. Uh, Mako specifically is now in South Korea and China and several other uh, countries, but we were way ahead of them. It was launched here first, and so their programs are fewer and far further between. Uh, we'd have to ask somebody from corporate how many of those um, robotic systems are in each country, but uh, certainly the program is growing, and there is national and international interest for multiple companies in the space. RoboDoc. Wow, that took me back. I think... That was the first surgical robot uh, in the U.S., wasn't it? I believe it was the first uh, approved through the FDA. There were some things over in Europe like the Casper system and all that uh, that, that preceded it. But, yes, I think the first uh, system approved for, or, for orthopedics in the U.S. was RoboDoc. Let's pontificate just for a second. What do you think will be the next great leap in this world? I think what everybody's chasing is, you know, cartilage restoration uh, in the joint replacement uh, literature. There's so much stuff. And finally, it's gotten the focus of our academy to look at some of this stem cell and, and this type of biologic data for growth of cartilage. Kevin, I don't think I'll see that in my lifetime, but uh, perhaps perhaps I'm wrong. I, I, I think our discipline now as far as joint replacement is really in the position to better place implants. And like we talked about earlier, connecting patient reported outcomes to intraoperative data. You know, maybe we do that through motion sensors. Maybe we do that through, um, you know, implanting chips in everybody. <laughs> uh, we'll have to figure out how we get the data. But but we have to have that data and we have to have the ability to distinguish between what we do intraoperative, uh, good or bad, to to, to, to an outcome. We're, we're pretty far away from that, but it's it's certainly an exciting field to think about. On a personal note, LinkedIn, forget all your wonderful content for a minute. And if you're listening to the show, I strongly suggest that you uh, you follow this gentleman. Uh, I want to know about that picture on your profile. What What is that and, and where was uh, it? Are, are you just talking about the picture of my face? Is it that bad, Kevin? Or <laughs> No, um, no. It's the, yeah, cave. the cave. It's the cave in the yeah. ocean. Thank you for asking that. I don't think I've ever addressed this issue. I don't think anyone's asked me. So that that is a cave actually uh, in Hawaii along the Nepali coast. Uh, several years ago, my wife uh, dictate. I mean, decided uh, to um, <laughs> to present to me the opportunity to kayak the Nepali coast. So it's a 17 mile stretch of land there, and so we were on a ocean kayak and kayak the side of the Nepali coast. And at one point in that tour, you can actually go into that cave that you see. I almost died in that cave, Kevin, but I did not. I am here to tell the story. It's a reminder of just incredible uh, beauty there is around us, time away from this work and uh, time with family. And it uh, that place kind of means so much to me. I would share with your listeners, you can kayak the Nepali coast. It takes about eight or nine hours. Uh, it's complete misery. Um, but uh, <laughs> but there there is a T-shirt that you can get. Uh, it was an incredible experience. Or you can do it on a boat, um, a little small naval type vessel with inner tube sides and see everything I saw in about 45 minutes. So your listeners will have to decide <laughs> whether they want the full-day excursion with pain or the beauty with comfort. Savoring life to the bone. Uh, how did you come up with that, and what was the uh, what was the inspiration for it? 
Well, I, I would love to tell you there was a light from above and uh, it was just revealed to me, but it's certainly not true. You know, my, my, my wife, on a bit of a serious note, uh, my wife uh, battled with colon cancer several years ago. Uh, she, she's, now, she's now healthy post-surgery and chemo and so thankful for that. But she had a dear friend that was of a similar young age battling colon cancer. And, um, and, uh, her name was Sarah Walker. And unfortunately she lost her battle to cancer, but she would always speak about savoring the day. In fact, she wrote a journal about that. There's a website that maybe your, your listeners would want to be connected to, but her name was Sarah Walker and she lost her battle to colon cancer, but her and my wife developed a strong relationship. And to me, it made an impression on me about the importance of savoring each day. Um, all I, I'm just a simple bone doctor, so it seemed natural to put bone in the phrase, but savoring life uh, all the way to the bone, to its very essence, I think is what we should all strive for. I love that. I was looking up a definition of the word savor as you were talking, and it said to to enjoy it completely. Uh, and I just uh, I love that. Well, Kevin, we're we're, we're not promised uh, uh, the the next moment or every day, and uh, and uh, so, so so be it. Because in this very moment, and in just a few minutes with you, I intend to. Savor this moment, and uh, and and then at the end of the day, we'll we'll feel like we accomplished something. Tell me, what's your favorite movie? Uh, Dead Poets Society, probably. You know this concept of carpe diem, right? Seize the day. Sure. Uh, sure. I, I got to weave that into a post soon. Uh, perhaps Gladiator. You know, um, uh, just uh, such an inspirational movie about overcoming uh, dramatic things. I guess that's where I rest. The Muppet movies nowhere in there. You know, oddly enough, you know, uh, with two small kids that I love more than life itself, uh, I've seen all those uh, multiple times. But uh, in in my private time, Kevin, I lean away from that collection. <laughs> Racquetball. Okay, you got to just give me give me advice. Help me. Serve me. Uh, whenever I play racquetball, I feel like I'm the person that uh, I feel like the person that I'm playing essentially stands still. Why I'll why I do circles around them and run all around the court like a chicken with my head cut off. What am I doing yes. wrong? Yes, and in that story, Kevin, I am. Um, <laughs> I have not figured out why the fat guy at the Y continues to obliterate the somewhat young, uh, somewhat healthy orthopedic surgeon. Um, uh, the, the truth of it is I, I started racquetball. Uh, don't play this uh, for my wife, but I started racquetball dating a girl in college and her father played. And he was one of these very heavy guys. And he asked me to play racquetball. And I thought, oh, yes. This is where I will shine. I look like a complete fool. Um, but I, ha I have dedicated my life to improvement. You know, the truth of it is, is I run around like you, but I use that as my cardio. So I, I, I've quit trying to get better. I'm just using it as cardio, and I'm fine to run around. I, I had to pitch in one time at church to help out with a youth group, and, and I was going through what I thought was just an epic presentation. And a girl raised her hand halfway through it, and, and I said, uh, I said, yeah, what's, uh, what's going on? She said, um, you know, this just sounds like C-SPAN. 
And wow, <laughs> I was yes. uh, I was devastated for a second until I realized yes. that not only was that kind of funny, but she was absolutely yeah. right. Uh, it, it's yes. been so much fun working with these young people. Uh, tell me how much how much time do you get to do that these days? Oh, listen, uh, it, it's it's great for me. And, and Kevin, that's a great story. The reality is, is I work with them because so many people work with me when I was a youth that's that made right. an impact on my life. And so it's it's a way to to give back. You know, if you want to make an impact on people, you you meet them where they are and you, you meet them in their time of need. And my goodness, my youth was a time of need. And, uh, you know, it's a way for me to give thanks. But but here's the thing. You know, they will be honest with you. Absolutely true. Yes. And so they are not impressed with uh, uh, how great of surgery I just performed or the complicated revision that only I could have achieved. They couldn't care less. They are in their <laughs> moment and they uh, hold uh, hold truth up in front of us. It, it's incredible. Uh, their ability to be not contaminated by all the confusion in the world, but honest and open. I love, man. It's great. Yeah, I love it too. So Device Nation uh, kind of serves as a de facto uh, industry relations committee, but you serve on one formally with AUKUS. So what does that entail exactly? Yeah, it's it's an interesting. So, AUKUS in particular has tried to remain uh, focused on the scientific uh, development of the community and try not to become overly commercialized, right? And I really respect them for that. You know, as a as a hip and knee replacement guy, it's the singular meeting that I think is most valuable every year. But in truth, it takes a partnership with industry to push this field forward, right? There's uh, industry dollars that lean into research. And so managing or navigating that relationship, the scientific integrity of an organization, again, AUKUS is so focused on that, but also the ability to not not leverage, but utilize or come together with our industry partners to make sure that we're all pushing in the same direction to advance uh, the field, I think is really what that committee is all about. So, you know, the mechanics of it are, you know, tracking dollars that come in for the academy and make sure everybody gets presented presented fairly. But 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 really the main focus is letting AUKUS take a leadership position to say, hey, we're in it with you. We're together. We all want what's best for the patient. How are we going to get there? We have a lot of device reps that listen to this podcast in the interest of industry relations. Any advice to them? Oh, you know, to the reps. uh, Boy, I tell you what, I think the most important thing uh, for a rep is just to be interested. Uh, I think if you're interested and engaged, I think you can you can bring great value. You know, my, my main rep that I utilize now actually started this rep with, you know, out of another industry, really a new experience. And he tells this, this incredible story about early on and him being in the operating room with me. And, and, uh, he would ask questions, right. He'd be interested, ask questions during the case. Kevin, that's my first bit, um, of advice is don't ask too many questions during the case of the surgeon. (laughs) He's busy. Um, but, uh, but but he he had asked me a question and, I, and my response to him was, him was my goodness every time you open your mouth all I hear is 
making a vomiting sound. (laughs) Now, in in fairness, Kevin, I don't remember that story, but it's a, it's a great story. It's an awesome story. I I hope I said that, even though I don't remember that, I really hope that that's true. Um, But the truth of it is one, you know, be interested, but also show the surgeons a little grace. You know, I think most of our stress level, our anxiety, our rough edges come from anxiety. And I think for most of us, a deep desire to do the right thing for the patient. You device guys, my goodness, you know, you get the sticker, you take the picture, you send it to the distributor, you get paid and you move on. But for the surgeon, boy, I'm, my family's growing, right? I I put a joint replacement in and I always tell people now we're connected for life. So such stress that comes with that, I would just be interested, but don't ask me too many questions during the surgery. And number two, show these surgeons just a little grace. I think it'll it'll benefit everybody in the long run. That's great advice. There was a great Brad Paisley country song I remember, uh, and I think it was "If I Could Write a Letter to Me." And it tells the story of a man listing everything he wished he would have told himself at age 17. Um, is there anything you would offer up to surgeons that listen to the show? If, if you were writing this song on your front porch in Franklin, Tennessee, anything that you would tell yourself, uh, your younger self in your career, uh, going through school, coming out of school? Well, I tell you what, I, I, you know, I certainly made plenty of mistakes along the way, Kevin, but, you know, I, I firmly believe that those kind of errors kind of form yourself. So, so, so I don't, I don't harbor a a ton of regrets. You know, I think what I've learned maybe more recently is I'm just a small town orthopedic surgeon from, from Tennessee, but the um, ability, the opportunity to put yourself out there to make connections, Kevin, with you and so many others who I've connected with on social media and, and, and some in industry and, you know, just the benefit there is no matter where you are to reach out to those around you that, that share your interest and, and maybe who don't even share your interest, the connectivity piece. Uh, I, I just would tell you all, 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 everyone really, I'd tell everyone to connect as much as they can. I think those relationships are so important. Uh, don't be discouraged that you're a smaller guy or I don't do that many joint replacements. So I'm not going to send, uh, Corey, a, Corey, a, a direct message, uh, reach out to me. I'm interested. I think that connection is so important. Don't let anything hold you back from that. What are the best ways for people to reach out to you? Well, um, you know, I'm always available. Technology is amazing. So, so uh, you, you, you've kindly mentioned, uh, Kevin, several times that, you know, I'm, I'm on LinkedIn. I'm sure you can direct message me. Uh, but um, I'm out there in many ways. Certainly feel free to call the office, uh, call my cell phone. I don't know if I should tell my cell phone on your podcast. but I would not do that. Yeah. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, reach out anytime. You know, call the office or find me on one of these social media channels and, I'll, I'll make sure and reach out. The last time I shared my phone number in a public setting, I have yeah. just been crushed with calls of people wanting to extend my automobile's warranty. Oh, that's amazing. That sounds great. You know what I'm getting now? You know what I'm getting now is a lot of political ads. Yes. Uh, I mean, four or five a day. And I blocked the number, but then they just send it from a different number. It's like <laughs> whack-a-mole. It's yeah. like whack-a-mole, and you're not going to win. Um <laughs> 
Well, you're doing a lot of the right things, obviously. I noticed the other day that you made the uh, 2019 top doctors list for Nashville. And, I mean, that's a big accomplishment because that is a big area, and there's a lot of surgeons uh, that would have been in consideration for that. So well done on that, and uh, you're pushing so many things forward. Uh, I love that hashtag, by the way, push forward. You're pushing so many things forward in a positive manner. And and I'm just so grateful that you came on the show today just to, to share your story and your, your sage words of advice uh, to me and my audience. Well, listen, uh, I, I appreciate the time uh, listening. I, 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 uh, I assure you I do more listening uh, than talking, although maybe this uh, podcast doesn't dictate that. I've really enjoyed speaking with you, Kevin. Thanks so much. What a great conversation with Dr. Callendown. I'm so thankful he came on the show to share his thoughts with us. And I was taking notes on our conversation, and one thing jumped off the page at me. Show your surgeon some grace. Grace, not a word you've probably ever heard in sales training. Sounds a little churchy, not so salesy. Grace Baptist, Grace Lutheran, Grace Kelly. Don't think this word has anything to do with device sales. Hold my hymnal. So let's start with some definitions. The exercise of love, kindness, compassion, mercy, favor, disposition to benefit or serve another. That fits really nicely into what we've been talking about for some time regarding relationship selling. And this is my favorite definition of grace, undeserved unmerited, and unearned favor. So let's walk through a couple scenarios and see some practical application of extending undeserved, unmerited, and unearned favor in someone else's direction. So let's say that somebody directs a comment towards you, a very sharp, pointy comment, when it wasn't something you did. Uh, You're in the OR, you're getting yelled at by the surgeon, by the staff, by purchasing uh, somebody at your office, and they're just having a hard time, and it really wasn't something that you did. You can go after the vindication and the validation thing and try to defend yourself, but in many of these circumstances, the best play is just to let it go and to show grace and affirm them and just move on and not hold it against them. Uh, Let it go, as the Disney song said. What if it's something that you did wrong and somebody brings it to your attention? What if they bring it to your attention in front of the staff or in a way that really embarrasses you or makes you just feel bad? We know outrage shrouds wisdom. If we're upset and offended, we can oftentimes completely miss out on the life-changing thing the words of life that somebody was giving to us in that moment. Grace, if we extend it to people and how they communicate, you know, maybe it wasn't communicated in the best possible way. But if I'm walking in grace towards that surgeon, towards that HCP, towards that person in my office, it can oftentimes just move the clouds away to help you more clearly see this is what I need to do differently to make sure that this never happens again. Offense is offense and can sometimes create a wall between us and the truth we need to hear. Let's flip that one around for a minute. I have seen reps over the years that were just horrible, 
with how they treated people in the office. You know, there's an involuntary aspect to this job and a voluntary aspect of this job about grace. You may not have heard this word in a sales context, but I promise you, you know it now that I bring it up when we talk about the OR environment, because it's an involuntary grace, right? You can't get in people's faces in the OR that are responsible for your paycheck. So you kind of give them grace because you're not going to come back. Now, you may walk out of the OR with a stinky attitude and what's going on inside, but on the outside, you're letting it go because you have to. But you find out who people really are and how they interact with people that don't necessarily have their paycheck in their hand. And that is oftentimes the people in the warehouse that put our cases together. I had a rep tell me one time, uh, and he was proud of this, that an elderly woman that put his case together had made a mistake, and he let her have it so hard that she was crying. And I was absolutely horrified and embarrassed for him. Uh, He thought he had done something that was noteworthy. Uh, What he should have done was to have shown her grace. She made a mistake because you know what? He may be making that same mistake next week. And just for the record, I have found that the people that walk in grace towards other people, irrespective of whether or not they deserved it or not, typically have a mattress available when they fall. But the people that do not walk in grace and just run everybody down behind their backs and sometimes even to their face, when they make a mistake, they look around and there's usually no mattress. They hit the concrete and they bounce. So here's some advice for you. I think this has really helped me. Local 706. What is that? It's a union out on the West Coast that has to do with makeup artists And I remember reading an article about them and the struggles they were having in the era of HD. When you have resolution on screens that can show the pores on people's faces, well, that just brings up a whole nother challenge in terms of makeup and covering blemishes and flaws uh, on celebrities and you know, actors, whoever. That whole HD mindset is something that we can easily do where we see life in HD, high definition, and we can get a little exercised from what other people do and that are things that are actually kind of small, but they seem big. Social media is big on that. Hey, look at this. You need to be outraged about this. And, and oftentimes we can completely miss the big picture because we're caught up in some small outrage. And I'm trying to do a better job of not seeing life in HD and get caught up in the molecules, but to be able to stand back and look at the big picture. And what's the big picture in this job? That that patient gets the best possible outcome as far as what I can, can control. And that the staff that I interact with feels positive having interacted with me. That's the big picture. Everything else, uh, if it's getting me distracted or getting me going the wrong direction, then I am just going to voluntarily decide to not go there and not get bogged down in these things that people may say uh, that could rub me the wrong way and get me off the big picture. This is not easy stuff. It is not easy at all. When somebody pokes you with a 
with a sharp stick in front of people or behind your back or whatever, the the environment we have in our country right now is I'm going to respond in kind. And you just can't do that. It doesn't work in this job. It doesn't work in your marriage. It doesn't work with your kids. You need to know when it's just time to show people grace because you need it. You're going to need grace one day. One of the things, too, that I just want to throw out there for you to contemplate, and that is showing yourself grace, all right? Sometimes that can be just as difficult as extending grace to people that are difficult to work with. I am the hardest on myself. I usually do not require correction because when I know that I've made a mistake, I am flogging myself far more than anybody else. But that's also a bad thing because then the focus is me. I'm negative. And again, I've lost sight of the big picture, the patient, the HCPs that are involved in that procedure on and on and on. It's working against me. So we need to have the capacity to show ourselves grace when we make a mistake, identify it, learn from it, move on. Keep your eyes on the big picture and don't get caught up in the molecules and get all HD on ourselves. So quick review, a word we have never really heard in sales training before, but it's critical in this job because it's the long play and grace is the long play. We defined it. It's extending to people undeserved, unmerited, unearned favor, being positive towards them, keeping no record of wrongs, just uh, letting it go. And in the course of doing that, oftentimes we see things that we couldn't have seen otherwise because we were offended, uh, things that we might need to change that can actually make us far more successful in this job. And at the same time, when we fall, and it's not a matter of if, it's when, that we might find ourselves landing on some memory foam instead of a bed with spikes on it, right? Uh, Hopefully that's the case. Not always, but uh, again, what's the alternative? And to show grace to ourselves and not just spend all this time beating ourselves up when we make that inevitable mistake, just learn from it, move on, and stay positive, Just remember, I ain't going to not keep giving people grace. No way, no how. You got that? A huge thank you to Dr. Callendon for coming into our country to talk to us today. Great stuff. Really enjoyed hearing from him and really enjoyed having you in the audience. I hope you have an awesome week this week and everything goes your way. And just be prepared. Somebody starts pushing your buttons, just try it out. Just try grace. Let me know how it goes. So let's all be gracious. Let's be kind. Let's be grammatically correct. And most importantly, let's all be safe.